I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. If you have them, the book of Hebrews. And we'll be looking in chapter 3. Our world selects leaders for all sorts of reasons. People rise to prominence in different nations. People rise to prominence in the United States. All for different reasons. We elect people, but in large part, the reasons that they are electable or the reasons that they are uh, qualified in our eyes depend on a number of factors. Sometimes it depends upon timing. I remember not long ago sitting with my wife in our living room watching a documentary on the rise of Fidel Castro in Cuba. And really, the rise of Castro in Cuba is all about timing, and it's about uh, who he was at the time of gaining popularity against a government that now today, most would look at Castro's government and see it as uh, tyrannical. Uh, but in a sense, they thought he would be the one who would subvert the existing tyranny of the day. And so timing allows Castro to come into prominence. Sometimes it's family. Um, John Quincy Adams uh, earns a platform because he's the son of John Adams. Um, George W. Bush earns a platform to speak, whether, whether we feel about issues, not the point, but he earns a platform in part because of his family lineage. Um, the Kennedys are a political family, and so we think of them politically because of lineage. So sometimes it, it has to do with that. Sometimes it just has to do more with accomplishment. Um, Dwight Eisenhower becomes the President of the United States after World War II. Well, because of his accomplishments, in the middle of the Second World War, he earns the right now in the American populace's eyes. Now he is qualified to lead. We have all different criteria and all different compartments that we place qualifications for someone being able to lead in. This morning I want us to look at Jesus as a superior leader. It's what the author of Hebrews, and the beauty of preaching through the book of Hebrews is since it's a sermon written, the points are already really there. We're just kind of drawing them out. And so we want to look at Jesus as a leader, and there are some significant ways it applies directly to us and some ways to be very candid. It should alter the way that we think about life a little bit and the way that we relate to life a little bit. The Lord is my shepherd, the psalmist says. I shall not want. I'm not going to look around desiring anything else. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. Back in 1862, a man named Joseph Gilmore went to the First Baptist Church in Philadelphia, a famous historic church. And he was 28 years old, finishing up his seminary degree, and he was asked to come and preach at this church, and so he went in the middle of the Civil War to preach in Philadelphia. And he began preaching on the 23rd Psalm, and he got to the phrase, he leads me, or he leadeth me, back in his using the King James. He leadeth me, and he stopped. And he intended, he had a whole sermon laid out to preach beyond that point, but his whole sermon was altered, and he focused everything and all of his energies on the phrase, he leads me, or he leadeth me. And he was enraptured with this thought after he left, finished his sermon, went over to a deacon in the church's home, for dinner, they sat around and they began talking about how God divinely guides us and the divine leadership that God gives us. And in the context of that, he began to etch some things down on paper and he passed them on to his wife, never thought anything else about it. What he passed on to his wife, his wife took and realized that this could really feed the church in a day when they needed leadership 
in the shadow and instability of the Civil War. And so she sent to a couple of Boston papers in um, magazines, she sent the lyrics of what we know as the hymn, He Leadeth Me. And years later, uh, Gilmore was teaching and uh, going out to speak at near the University of Rochester, and he was speaking at a church out there, and he was leafing through the hymnal to see what kind of things were in the hymnal, and he looked and he saw this hymn. He didn't even know his wife had sent it. This was years later, and he looked and thought, wait a minute, that, that's, I wrote that. He etched it on a paper one day, and I want to read to you just a few of these lyrics. First, the first verse says, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught, filled with heavenly comfort, Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still, tis God's hand that leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's bowers bloom, by waters calm or troubled sea, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur, nor repine, content whatever lot I see, since tis my God that leadeth me. And listen to the fourth verse. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory's won, e'en death's cold wave, I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. The hymn writer was well aware of a metaphor that Scripture gives us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it likens our spiritual journey to the exodus from Egypt to entering a restful experience wherein God connects with me and I connect with God in an intrinsically supernatural, wonderful way where we are living in relationship together. And when that moment happens, what the author of Hebrews calls that is entering the rest. And if you are here this morning and you have appropriated the blood of Christ to your life because you have believed on Christ and what He has done for you, and that solely, then you have entered the rest. You've entered this rest. Now, in entering that rest, the fact of me entering that rest is much shown by my life experience and how I live out much of that. When the people journeyed out of Egypt, to give you a little background, they came and, and they were just moaners and groaners and gripers and complainers. It's a worse group of people imaginable to lead. Everything's provided for them. Uh, a sea opens so that they can walk through. You usually would think if that happens, maybe that should strengthen your faith just, just a little bit. And yet, they look back and all they can do is groan and gripe and complain. And, and Moses gets fed up with it. And there comes a point where Moses can't really take anymore. God had told him earlier to strike a rock because they were all thirsty and whining and complaining about it. Like my daughters late at night. We want a drink! And here they all are. Give us a drink! And so Moses says, okay, you want a drink? God will give you a drink. He whacks the rock. God told them to do that. Later on, they start whining again. It's night number two. We want a drink. We want a drink. Just like an alarm clock going off in the morning, right? So what does he do? Moses, at this point, is, is pretty fed up. His sister has just died. Miriam dies just before this happens, and he's emotionally probably not real collected. And the people are griping in his ear because, see, in the leader's job, no matter what goes on in the personal life, the leader still needs to lead, right? So he's leading. He's leading. But he's not a man without emotion. He's not a man without struggles and strains and strife and internal things that just kind of churn on the inside. And so finally, they're whining for a drink, and God says, let's switch the thing. Speak to the rock. Maybe knowing that Moses would beat the living tar out of the rock because he's so ticked off. 
And he says, speak to the rock and water will come out. So what does Moses do? Moses walks over and says, you want water? I'll give you water. And he smacks and just starts beating this rock. You can picture the scene. He's frustrated. That cost Moses the opportunity to enter the promised land because as a leader at that point, he was an awesome leader, incredible leader. You get to the end of his life and he, he goes and he looks over the promised land from this mountain and then this, this most intimate, one of the most intimate scenes in all of the Old Testament is this phrase where it says, Moses died and God buried him there. And God buries him because he was his prized leader, but he was a guy who, much like us, lost it in the heat of the moment, and as a result, he disqualified himself. The author of Hebrews is going to start and compare Moses leading the people out during the Exodus to us in our Christian life. We have a leader. It's Jesus. Last week, we saw he was called the pioneer of our salvation. He walked the turf you're walking. He was tempted in the ways you're tempted, the text says. He lived the life you're living. He just lived it perfectly. And being the God-man was qualified to be your Savior, yes, because he was the Son of God, but now, because of that, he's also qualified to be your leader because he did it perfectly. He's going to start off comparing him to Moses, and then he's going to walk in from there to talking a little bit uh, about how we need to respond to this leadership. So look in verse 1 of chapter 3, and let me begin to read, and you'll see this comparison begin. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, and you'll notice right off, remember I've told you, he operates with them based upon the premise that their confession of faith is true. He's not cynical. He's not trying to overanalyze. He is simply saying, and though we all know this, we all know people that prayed a prayer one time in their life, they've never lived for Christ since then. We don't have a category to put them in. We don't know if they're believers or unbelievers. The Lord knows the answer to that. But the bottom line is this. He looks at them, and he's going to take their confession of faith as valid. He's going to say, okay, this is what you say, then your life needs to match it. And if it doesn't match it, you need to question what you say. Because there's a dynamic change that happens when Christ comes in. There's a synergy that takes place, and it kicks out fruit. It kicks it out into your life. It's a dynamic something. So he initially calls them holy brothers. He's operating on the premise that they're in Christ. Who share in the heavenly calling, a word used five times in this book, to say they're partakers with. Earlier he said that uh, he called us Jesus' companions. Same word. idea is, in a friendship relationship with Jesus, share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. All right, he says, here's what we're going to do. I want you now to focus your mind on Jesus. Just get thinking about Christ, he says, because we're going to spend some time talking about Him and about who He was and how your life needs to realign itself to who he was. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Two things, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. The apostle, God's messenger to man. The high priest, man's messenger to God. See both of those? He's God's messenger to man. He's telling us what God wants us to know about how we're to act in life, about how we are to respond to the holiness of God and to the situation of our own sinful condition. But he also is mediating or going between us on behalf of us as our representative back to God in making the case that his blood is what satisfies God's wrath toward us because of our sin. So two directions, and he's making the point. 
Fix your thoughts on Jesus who stands in the gap and points his fingers in both ways and is bridging this for you and I. Begin thinking about him, he says. Now he's going to begin comparing him to Moses. Realizing the superior leadership of Jesus. Just look at this, verses 2 through 6. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Who was that? God. God appointed him to fulfill this specific duty. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. He's going to compare him to Moses, and he's saying first, they're alike. They're alike in regard to this. They did what was expected of them. They did what was anticipated. Now, Jesus' sacrifice is incredibly and astonishingly great. But it was from the foundations of the earth, since Revelation says he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, it's what was expected of him. And he did it. Just like Moses, though he failed later on in life, did what was expected of him. And understand, Moses was an incredible leader, a great man, one of the greatest men in all of biblical history. And so he's saying both were faithful. Jesus, though, verse 3, has been found worthy of, and there's this comparative term used over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews because the author's trying to say Jesus is superior to, and you fill in the blank because he's going to walk through a number of things. Here, he's specifically speaking about Moses. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was a faithful servant, and take the preposition and just circle it in your Bible. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. In it. He served within the framework of what God had established in the Old Covenant, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is a faithful son over, over God's house. And we are His house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. He's saying, Jesus came. And He supersedes Moses because His position is greater than Moses. Moses was a great servant of God, but Moses wasn't God. Moses did what he was designed to do, but Moses wasn't the designer. Moses worked within the house, Moses didn't establish the house. And he's drawing this comparison to show Jesus by his nature is more qualified to lead than Moses was. And you say, well, what, well how does that impact me? At one level, it doesn't in this regard. The comparison may not fit with you culturally because you're not a, a Jewish person transitioning into Christianity who all of your life has said, boy, if I could just be a leader like Moses. That's all I want to do. I just want to be a leader like Moses. Instead, we want to be like Churchill, right? So Churchill's our Moses. In Jewish culture, hey, pretty good compliment. Hey, son, you're a good leader, like old Moses. That's a pretty big compliment. He's comparing culturally the greatness of Christ in establishing so that as he begins here, we realize. Now, the bulk of our time I want to spend with you is in these past next few verses. Oops, I went the wrong way. Verse 7 through 19 get us into the, what is called the second warning passage of the book of Hebrews. All along the way, just to, to recap and refresh you, as we look at the book of Hebrews, he is in a sermon talking about the superiority of Jesus in his person 
in his role, and then how do you live out that superiority? How do you live different if Jesus is superior? And so he's putting out this sermon, and along the way, it's like he has five Barry Bonds steroid injections right in it. Boom, boom, boom. You can tell where I, where I come down on the Bonds issue. He's got them right in here, right? And he's essentially using these warning things as devices, language devices, to say, you're heading on a course. Don't do something to put that in jeopardy. Don't do something to put that in jeopardy. Now, I told you, it is like having a, uh, I use this example, it's the third time I've used it, but it's a great example, but I want you to understand. It's like if I have a cup of arsenic here. No one's saying in this room, if I say to you, hey, that cup is filled with arsenic. Don't drink it. None, no sane person in the room is going to go, well, I'll take a shot at it. The very fact of the warning in itself keeps any sane person away from it. That's the point of the warnings. If you're in Christ, and you, if you claim to be in Christ, it's a way kind of of separating the wheat from the tares is what the warning comes down to. If you are in Christ, and you receive this warning and ignore the warning, what's the implication? You wanted the arsenic. You wanted death rather than life. The spiritual application is, if you ignore the warning, then you're not in Christ. Your, your faith was never real. You trusted in something else. And by the way, we do that all the time. You know, I, I quote, ask Jesus into my heart. We use that phrase in Christianity, which isn't a real good phrase, but we use it. We, we, I, I invited Christ in my life somewhere between nine and 11,000 times between I was like seven and nine, right? You know? scared to death. They showed me some Christian horror film, uh, and, and I got all freaked out over it and thought, Jesus is going to come back. I'm not going to be ready, so I better confess his name a bunch and get all geared up, you know, in case he forgot that I was his. I did it all the time, but I never really processed the concept of genuinely believing and giving my life over to Christ. Never. It wasn't until I was almost 13 that I, that I finally genuinely understood the implications of what I was doing and why I was doing it for myself and really owned this thing. People make confessions all the time. Professions aren't possessions. They're not. They could be, but it doesn't mean they are. It doesn't mean they are. And so what he's saying is, stay away from the arsenic. And so this is his second warning. Don't live a life contrary to Christ. Now, along the way, oops, see if we're going to work here. There you go. Look at that. Along the way, are you kidding me? <laughs> Stephanie, are you playing games with me back there? All right, you ready? There we go. All right. Along the way, what you're going to see is these warnings escalate. First is don't be careless about your salvation. Don't just kind of slough it off and ignore it. Now he says guard yourself. Pay attention that you don't un unwittingly, unwittingly slip away. Guard yourself and others from unbelief. Now look at the text, and we're going to get into it. Here we go. So as the Holy Spirit says, he finished talking about Moses, and now he's going to say, quote Psalm 95 and relate it back to Moses. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, and you underline the word today, it's going to come back again, and it's going to be really important. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This comes from Psalm 95, which is one of the great worship psalms that we have in all of Scripture. It talks about two aspects of worship that are both important, celebrating the goodness of the Lord and bowing before Him in consecrated reverence. Those are two components of corporate worship that we try to incorporate here at Lifeline because we want to demonstrate both of those dispositions 
before the Lord. Now, on the heels of that, though, what we tend to kick out in worship, and we think that's all worship is. At the end of Psalm 95, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You came to church this morning. You came to worship. Why? Hopefully, to offer a sacrifice to God, but then to hear from God. To hear something. What does God want for your life? What, needs to, what edges need to be chiseled off? What needs to be changed in the way that we present ourselves to God? And so he says here, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did during the rebellion. He's referring back to the whiners about the water. The water whiners. Back, in the, back during the Exodus period. As you did in the rebellion, or at Mirabah is the actual word, during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. He's saying, they became very self-consumed and they rebelled and they tested me and they pushed button after button after button after button with me. And finally, I said, that's enough. I'm not going to let you enter the rest because, why? Their actions portrayed the attitude of their heart. The author is drawing a parallel to the concept of entering heaven and saying you will not enter the rest, he's saying, unless you have a faith that is such a faith that is real. It's genuine. And you'll see this later on. He kind of links faith and obedience, showing one's just the product of the other. One's the natural consequence of the other. It doesn't mean that I enter heaven by works. Don't misunderstand me. What starts this process is crucial. It's everything. Literally, it's everything. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, end of story. But the faith that saves is a dynamic, loaded bomb that's going to explode and produce some things. I don't come to Jesus, pray a prayer, and go on living my life as though it never happened. If that's the case, then I drank the wrong Kool-Aid. Seriously. That's, that's the issue. And he's saying here, listen, don't harden your hearts. You press in. To the, you press and continue on in belief. So look at verse 12, and you're going to see three ways you do this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How do you respond to the superior leadership of Jesus? The first thing is this. And if you're writing anything down in this, write these three things down. The first is guard your hearts as an individual. Protect your heart. It's the wellspring of life, Solomon said in Proverbs 4. It is the ground of your being. It is a metaphor that speaks about your inner man or your inner woman. The concept that who you are is the product of what you think, how you process the influences of your life, and your internal personal dedication to the glory of God. You bring those together and your actions are going to be demonstrated from those things. What is going on in your heart? And he says here, see to it that none of you has a sinful, on the one hand, or unbelieving, those are linked, sinful, actively disobedient, unbelieving, lacking faith, a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Guard your heart so that the influences of our culture today in America don't turn your allegiance this direction. So that you are now pointed 
away from him rather than toward him. And sometimes in our culture, it can happen a little bit unwittingly. Sometimes we don't process it. We don't step out and say, today is going to be a day of sinful, wicked rebellion. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. You know what? You probably aren't thinking that way, but by the time you get to the end of the day, A, B, C, and D have already been done, and you haven't even thought about it. Because in the way that the culture, the carnival of counterfeits that is the world, begins to turn your heart slowly but surely, you're headed in a different direction. Now, sometimes we write the ship. That's a great thing. But what if we don't? What if we don't? What's happened? Our allegiance is here. He's saying, guard your hearts. Be careful. Because your heart is a precious thing. Confess with your mouth, Romans says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. If that is the source, if that is the starting point, if that is the ground from which my belief springs, how much should I guard it? With everything I've got, period, everything. That means heightening my sensitivities. means understanding more the influences that are around me. Now watch this, though. We're all okay with that. We say, yeah, we know that. Uh, We've heard that here different Sunday mornings. Great. Look at verse 13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Now he's kicked open a whole new concept. Because in America, I'm okay guarding myself, guarding my life, guarding my own possessions, looking out for numero uno, but what about you? Am I watching out for you? What about the person next to you? How you doing watching out for them? Oh, I don't understand. My life's busy and I've got enough on my plate just thinking about me. <laughs> okay, that's a nice way to say I'm utterly selfish. You're responsible for people around you. You are. You're culpable for people around you. The laws are structured that way. The Old Testament law was structured that way. Things in our society are structured that way. You're culpable for people around you and how they live their life. And you're culpable in a couple of ways. Sometimes the consequences of their actions can come down on your head. But guess what else? You're also accountable to help prevent them from falling away. If someone in this church decides to walk out of here and kick God to the curb, And not one person in this church came to them and said, what are you doing? Don't do it! And came alongside and did not come alongside them. We're a pathetic church. We're a sad, sad excuse for a church. If that's the case, guess what we are? We're like some churches. I've seen some churches like this. We're a Sunday morning event. That's what we are. We're like a glorified rock concert with a fancy speaker. That's it. You should have bought a ticket at the door and come on in and left. We're not. We're a community. We offer a communal offering to God. That's the church. I'm accountable for you. You're accountable for me. That's part of life. He says, encourage one another. Look at your text again. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let me share something with you from history. At the beginning of the 19th century, a, a... In the later part of the 18th century, early 19th century, a philosophy began to emerge in the broader culture. It was part of a large age that we call in history the Age of Reason. And in the middle of the Age of Reason developed the Enlightenment period. 
in the Enlightenment period, I remember sitting in a seminary class with uh, this lecturer who was very tall. He was about Patrick's height, seven foot nine, something like that. And he was, no, he was like six foot eight. And he, he, would, he had the longest fingers known to man. The guy could scratch my nose and I'd be in the fourth row. I, he, just unbelievable. I always remember how long his fingers were. And, I would, you know. and he would always point. He'd always talk like this. So he's just like, you know, Inspector Gadget, just wielding them out at you. And, I, and so he's talking at us. And as he would go on, he was talking about the Enlightenment, and he would walk like this, and he would talk, and he was cogitating by the smell of the lamp, and he's uh, walking, walking, and then he pointed us like this. He'd be throwing them at us, and he would say, the Enlightenment essentially said this, and I loved it. If I don't remember anything from seminary, I remember this. It said, we don't need no nannies. The Enlightenment said, I don't need anyone to tell me how to think what to do, how to process reality, how to form my own ethics, how to see things as aesthetically beautiful, how to come to my own knowledge. I don't need anyone. You know who I need? Me. That's it. That's all I need. I'm an island of myself. I make my own reality. Now what's happened with enlightenment is it's grown. And rationality became essentially God, and we became a people who thought we could arrive at truth all by ourselves, without anyone else helping us. We didn't need any concept of community or anything, nothing like that. Now, postmodernism has come along and added this kind of veneer of community over it, but it's a community that says this. I want all the resources and all the benefit that you can bring to my life, but I don't want any of the accountability that you bring along with it. So it's just enlightenment thinking cast with really a selfish veneer that says, what can you do for me? That's what community means to me. What can you do for me? How can you affirm my ideas? But if you tell me things that I don't like, I call you intolerant. So we, see, we, we, we have this kind of crazy mentality that's developing today. And essentially we've said, we don't need any, you know what, I need some nannies. I do. I, I need a few. I need some people to come alongside and say, Hurlbut, you're out of line, man. Step back in line. Get back after it. As much as I'm going to regret making this statement, I sometimes need my wife to tell me to slow down when I'm behind the wheel. I sometimes need her correction when I'm driving. Ooh, that's going to come back to haunt me. I need people to speak into my life, and so do you. I need to be teachable. I need to be willing. I need to look at history and learn from history. I need to look at the writers of the past and what do they give me for my future. I need to think through these things because they're crucial to my life. Now notice the urgency that he speaks with. At the beginning he says that the psalmist said in verse 7, today if you hear his voice, now he says, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. As long as it's called today. What he's saying is don't wait to do it. The person that says, I'm going to start exercising next week, that's code language for, I'm never really going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to start my diet next week. I'm going to start reading the Bible regularly beginning next week. Um, guess what? It's always next week. There's always another week. You start today, and he's saying, while it's called today, begin the process of encouraging one another and entering into relationship. I don't know how you view time, but there's two kind of key ways I think that we view time. I think one is wrong and one is, one is fundamentally wrong and one is fundamentally right. 
The, uh, the old poet Ben Johnson wrote that time was called, he called time the old bald cheater. And meaning that time is kind of ruthless, isn't it? Uh, as we age, sometimes we wish we could dip back because the spirit, kind of the spirit's willing but the flesh is weak. We wish we could dip back into younger years because we're wiser and we could live probably a lot better than we did in our younger years and a lot wiser, and yet at the same time now we don't necessarily have the time to do it. Time is ebbing away. It's part of the process of life. It's, it's something that sometimes we view as kind of a ruthless dog that comes hunting us, and it takes away bits and pieces of our life again and again and again and again. This is when we head towards kind of lamenting and, in a way, kind of depressive episodes. That's one way to look at time. My grandmother, yesterday morning, um, died. She passed away. I'm leaving tomorrow morning to fly to New York for her funeral. It's easy in times like this to look and say, um, time is stealing away family. Time is taking away relationships. Time is taking away days, and it just doesn't seem like there's quite enough time to do it all. That's one way to view time. There's another way to view time. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, says it like this. Make the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. The other way to view time is to see every moment as an opportunity that's granted you from a good king, the Lord of glory, who rides in majesty, but gives you the gift of a day, who gives you the gift of an hour, who gives you the gift of a minute. i got to be honest with you, that if everybody in this room, if we could all consciously view time this way, you know what it's going to change? Just to show you where this thing goes. The next time you're in an argument with your wife, you're going to ask yourself, is this thing really worth it? Is it really? An argument with your husband, is it, is it really worth it? How much, is, how much am I letting time cheat away the opportunities. The next time you're involved, you, you, you choose to uh, do absolutely meaningless, worthless things that are utterly trivial, you may ask yourself, is it really worth it? Or is time chewing it away? Am I taking and making the most of every single opportunity that I'm given in life? Because we all nod our head. If I say to you, your life is a gift from God, everyone in this room is going to nod your head. You're here this morning, whether you've believed Christ, whether you have it. The bottom line is you're here this morning because you have a theistic concept and you're going to agree with that statement. Life is a gift from God. Well, if it's true, every moment of it is. And are you maximizing every single moment? Knowing that you'll give account for every single moment. So he says, today, right now, as long as it's called today, so that no one of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come, and this is the fourth thing. First is guard your heart. The other is guard the hearts of others, and then the fourth is endure to the end. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. You began in faith, he's saying, keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. Just as it has been said today, there it is again, if you, heart, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Maximize your moments. Verse 16, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? He's drawn back to the application, or the, the, the um, illustration. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? 
Their disobedience demonstrates what? Look at verse 19 and I'm done. So we see that they were not able to enter. Why? He said a minute ago their disobedience because of their unbelief. He's making the link and he's saying you start in faith and this faith is like this bomb that you receive that is going to explode and produce other things. It's going to blossom out and bloom. It's going to produce obedience. So he can speak about the symptom of that faith, the evidence of that faith, and say, if you're not obeying, maybe you need to look back and ask yourself, have I really believed? So a question for you this morning is, what's the nature of your faith? A second question, though, is directly out of the second point that I made that I want you to walk away with. As you guard yourself in this life from the influences of the world and guard your own heart from not turning against Christ, are you guarding everybody else's? Are you guarding your, your friends? Are you guarding those you live in relationship to? Are you guarding your spouse? Are you guarding your children? Are you guarding that loved one? Are you guarding the person you see Sunday morning in here? Are you invested in their life in such a way that their failure impacts you? Because as long as it's called today, you've got an opportunity. But you let today slip away and you're going to form a habit, a pattern of moving into next week's and the week after and the week after. And oh, you'll get to it. And oh, it'll get done. Let me tell you something. Listen carefully and I'm done. But this is, a, this is an impassioned plea from your pastor. Listen to me. The culture in America, forget about Utah, forget about it. The culture in America is going to hell in a handbasket. It's dying, friend. Some of the mainline church culture today is dying. It doesn't care about Christ. It's essentially the loyal order of water buffaloes on the Flintstones getting together for a good old time. Well, I got to tell you, I hope we have a good time in here, but I'm not getting together for a good old time on Sunday morning. I'm getting gather, together with you so that the community of Christ is infused with the concept that we are about mission and we are on mission together, and we are called by God to live out that mission in an important, pertinent way where life is at stake. Life is at stake. I want to challenge you. Plug into the life of Lifeline community because some of you are going to reach points in your life, and I'm telling you this, you're going to reach points in your life where this is going to be all you've got. You will. You're going to be so thankful for the church, for what the church brings to your life. Not because of anything anyone does, but because the dynamics of the community, it's supernatural. That's why God ordained the church. He ordained two things, marriage and the church. Guess what? Both of them remove your aloneness. Both of them fulfill your life. So plug into it for all you've got, with all you are, for the glory of God. Pray with me. You're a good king, our Father. You're a, you're a gracious God. You're one who governs us in ways that uh, sometimes are stretching to us. At other times, they are um, blessings that we don't deserve. But you're one who cares about us. You're one who is involved in our life. And the text shows that this morning, uh, the, the impassioned plea from the author of Hebrews to us. Help us to live lives that, are, that fit with what we say we believe. And help us in that framework to uh, honor you and to care about one another in a way and care about this church in a way that bring you honor and glory. Thanks for each one that's here this morning. Strengthen us for the journey. 
because it's long and sometimes it's arduous. And uh, I know you know that. But sometimes we need your comfort and we need your strength. In Jesus' name.